You're kind. I wasn't planning on sharing this story, but I think I will. <laughs> um, years ago when I was a young pastor, we have a number of guests with us today who remember when I was young and had hair. Um, a dear friend of mine, a fellow pastor, Steve Holliday, and I went to hear an older pastor preach in Grand Rapids. And um, after this older man preached, Steve and I went up to meet him and talk to him. And, and my friend Steve said, uh, Pastor Cray, do you still get butterflies in your stomach when you preach? And he said, well, yes, I do. He said, when I was a young man, I think it was the fear of man. Now as an older man, I hope it is the fear of God. And as an older preacher, that's in my heart, to preach in the fear of God. Thank you, Pastor Mark. I love you too, brother. You are a gift to our church. On a much lighter note, you know, with the death of Queen Elizabeth, not that that was light, but with... with Let me start over. Uh, <laughs> in light of the recent death of the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II, there have been lots of stories about her floating around on media. And one that Gladine brought to my attention that I found especially enjoyable is this. Um, one of her royal protection officers, I think that's kind of like our secret service in England, one of her royal protection officers named Richard Griffin shared this story. He said that he and the queen had come across some American hikers one day when they were out walking around the grounds of Balmoral Castle, uh, the queen's holiday home in Scotland. And as the Secret Service guy, as the Royal Protection Officer and the queen were on their hike, they encountered a couple of Americans, uh, tourists, walking toward them. Let me just share it the way Mr. Griffin shared it. There were two hikers coming toward us, and the queen would always stop and say, hello, Griffin said. And it was clear from the moment we first stopped that they hadn't recognized the queen. Griffin said one of the Americans began telling the queen where they'd come from, what sites they'd seen in Great Britain. Then he asked the queen where she lived. She said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just on the other side of these hills. Griffin recalled. And he said, how often have you been coming up here? <laughs> when the king, queen told the Americans she had been coming up to Balmoral Castle for over 80 years, the hiker asked her if she'd ever met Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> well, I haven't, but Dick here has quite often. <laughs> the hiker then turned to Griffin, the protection officer, and asked, oh, you've met the queen What's she like? <laughs> because I was with her a long time and knew I could pull her leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she has a lovely sense of humor. The American then put his shoulder around Griffin, got his camera, and gave it to the queen and asked if she could take a picture of him with the royal protection officer. After that photo, Mr. Griffin relates, he swapped places and took a picture of this American couple with the queen, never letting on who she was. After they left, waved goodbye, the queen said, I would love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photographs to his friends in America. 
and hopefully someone tells him who I am. Please join me in the book of Hebrews chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, for our guests this morning, uh, we are going through the book of Hebrews together. This morning, chapter 3. We are amused by these tourists, and yeah, we need to blush a little bit as Americans, these American tourists, who were so fascinated with someone who knew the queen that they missed honoring the queen herself. Many first century Jews were understandably fascinated with Moses, God's prophet. God had worked miracle after miracle through Moses, leading the Israelites out of their Egyptian slavery. It was through Moses that the law was mediated to the Israelites. When Moses heard from God, it wasn't through dreams and visions, it was face to face. Moses knew God. No wonder the Jews were fascinated with Moses, the prophet. But in their fascination with this man who knew God, in their fascination with Moses, the prophet, were they in danger of missing Jesus? Keep that in mind as we read the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3. The Word of God says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted more worthy of more, excuse me, counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So, Why was Moses deserving of respect? Why was Moses deserving of respect? Let's look and see what it tells us here about Moses in this passage. In verse 2, what do we read? That he was faithful. He was a faithful servant in the house of Israel. And in this passage, the author of Hebrews uses this word house several times. And what he means by house is not necessarily a physical structure. He's using that as a denotation of the family. So the family of God, the people of God. If you've ever read the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and in particular, Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, you'll know that Moses did not have an easy ministry. And yet he remained faithful. Moses remained faithful to God, not for a month, not for a year, for four decades. For 40 years, Moses was faithful in leading these people of God who, quite frankly, were Rebellious, complainers, and yet Moses continued on day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. It seems like people were repeatedly challenging his leadership, and sometimes it was even family members. 
Even his own family members would challenge his leadership at times, his commissioning from the Lord. <coughs> and in Numbers chapter 12, we read the painful story of Moses' own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, challenging his leadership, challenging his credentials as God's spokesman. That did not end well for Miriam and for Aaron. It says that God actually came down. God actually came down to the tent of meeting and he spoke and called them by name. It says this in Numbers chapter 12. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward. You bet they did. And he said, God said, hear my words. If there was a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. When I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that passage in Numbers, and he uses the same kind of terminology, and he says, Moses was faithful as a servant of God. But then he adds this in verse 5. If you drop your eyes down to verse 5, he says, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. When the author of Hebrews refers to Moses as a servant, by the way, there's, in the word, there's a word in the Bible for servant or sometimes slave. It's pretty common, and some of you have probably even heard of it. And it, it's a different word than this word. The word that the author of Hebrews uses here is a less common word. It's, it's a word that denotes dignity, respect. And I was trying to think of a modern analogy, and I was struggling to find up with something, but since I was talking about the Queen of England, they, they call the leader of their parliament what? The prime minister. The word minister means servant. He's the prime servant of the royal house. He's the prime servant. And I was thinking that's probably the closest analogy I can think of in our day is when it talks about servant, it's, it's actually a high term, a term of dignity. And God, through the author of Hebrews and in the book of Numbers, calls Moses this kind of servant. The kind of servant that deserves respect. Moses' ministry was to the people in his day. But something a lot of the people missed in his day was that his ministry actually pointed forward. When Moses spoke, he spoke not only of what was happening then and there, but he was also pointing the people ahead. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, it says this. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And it's clearly pointing forward to Christ himself. And so many of the people in Moses' day, and even Jews over the centuries, have looked at Moses sometimes as the terminus. He's kind of the end point. He's the one we're to respect and revere and follow. And yet the author of Hebrews, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, says, well, Moses spoke. He wasn't just talking about himself. He was pointing higher and farther. He was pointing higher and farther of one who was to come. He's pointing people to the Messiah who is coming. 
And I think of this, we're going to read this later in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we read the term shadow often. That the things in the Old Testament were depicted often as a shadow. They, they weren't the substance. They weren't the final thing. They were not the ultimate thing. But they were to give a clue to the people who saw the shadows of something bigger, something more ultimate that was yet to come. Those of you that have known me over the years know I have a rather simple mind. And, and so when I read about shadow and substance, I, th I think of Jesus being like the, the solid thing, the substance. And, and he's standing in history, he takes his feet from heaven in eternity and he evades time. And as he stands here, God's light of revelation shines on his son and it casts a shadow back into the Old Testament. And so when the people saw the shadows cast by Jesus in the Old Testament, they see things like the tabernacle and, and the sacrifices, the, the high priests. They, they see even the very exodus out of Egypt, the slavery out of Egypt. And all of those were important in and of themselves, but none of them was the final thing. None of those was the terminus. They were shadow being cast by Jesus into the Old Testament. And even those, those people, even though those people didn't have the revelation that we have having the New Testament, they were blessed by knowing they could look at that shadow and saying, well, that, that looks like something that's to come that's pointing them forward, that sacrifice of that animal pointing them to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That that tabernacle where God's glory came and dwelt with the people was a shadow pointing them that one day God will come himself permanently. Moses wrote about the day that was to come. And the people were to see that and they were to say, Moses is serving us by telling us what is to come. They weren't, get, weren't to get fixated on Moses as if he was a, the final one. You know, when you think about that, why would we get mesmerized by shadows? And, and I run into people sometimes that they're, they're thinking, well, if we just can keep the Old Testament law, we'll be good enough for God. And it's like, the law was never meant to serve that way. It was to show us our need for the Messiah and point us to the Messiah. Why get fixated on the shadow when the substance is here? Now, some of you are aware that sometimes I travel to speak in other places, and usually, gladly, my wife goes with me but occasionally she doesn't. And so if I'm off traveling without my wife, you know, I can pull up my phone and, and you know, my cover photo is my wife and me together. And I, I can look at the picture of my wife as I'm traveling and look forward to the day I'm going to see her again, you know, when I fly home or whatever, I can see my wife again. And you say, that's really sweet. But what if I actually got home and I'm sitting in our living room look, looking at the picture of my wife and she's right there, and I'm paying no attention to her. I'm fixated on the photograph of her. You would say, that's just plain weird. I mean, she's right there. Why, why are you fixated on her photograph when she's there? And that's, in a sense, what the book of Hebrews is telling these people. Why are you so fixated on the shadow? Why are you so fixated on the photograph when the real one is here, Jesus Christ? Moses pointed to him, don't get stuck on Moses. He pointed higher and further to Jesus himself. Doesn't that give more understanding when we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 46? Jesus challenged the theologians of his day. He challenged the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, For if you believed Moses, 
you would believe me. For he wrote of me. And he said, you're stuck on Moses. If you really believe Moses, you'd believe me because he was pointing to me. So why would Jesus then deserve more honor? Why would he deserve more glory than Moses? Well, look, look at this verse. It says in verse 1 again. Do you see it? A couple phrases in there. It says, consider Jesus. Now, if you forget all the other things I say today, I hope these two words stick. I hope they stick in your mind. I hope they stick in your heart. I hope they stick in your life. I hope they stick in our church. Consider Jesus. That word consider is a fascinating word. It means to, to fix your mind on something, to devote your thinking, your affections on something, to focus. I think of it as focusing in the sense of keeping Jesus as central, keeping Jesus right in dead center of my thinking, my affections, my priorities, my choices in life. Focus on Jesus as central. Consider Jesus. Don't let him drift to the periphery of your life. Don't let Jesus be some addendum to your life, some peripheral issue. Keep Jesus front and center. Focus on Jesus. Consider Jesus. If we don't do that, we're in trouble. And I think sometimes we can just naively assume we can put too much weight on our own goodness we think, well, doesn't that just come naturally for a Christian? Doesn't it just come naturally for a Christian to keep Jesus central? No. No. The author of Hebrews has already addressed that. I know not all of you were here, but for those of you that were here when we were at the beginning of chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to the weightiness of this. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And so the author of Hebrews is acknowledging here right up front, it is not natural to stay centered on Christ. Our tendencies to drift, to drift to the left, to drift to the right, we must stay centered on Christ. It needs to be an intentional act on our part, fueled by God's grace. And this is true for us, not only as individuals, but this is true for us as a church, just as it is true for every gospel-preaching church, that we need to be intentional in keeping Christ as central. We must focus on Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus. This tendency to drift. My mind went back to something I read one time of Dr. Don Carson, a New Testament scholar. He said... People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. 
My friends, those are profound words. That we don't drift toward godliness. We don't drift toward Jesus Christ. Our tendency is to drift away. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. And so God's word reminds us afresh in the book of Hebrews that we must consider Jesus. We must consider him. We need to focus on him. Keeping him central in our lives. And so as we focus on Jesus, even in these six verses, what do we see in him? What do we see in Jesus? The author of Hebrews says something that should get our attention right away. He says, consider Jesus the apostle. What? what, what? Jesus the apostle? I did a search on this. This is the only place in the whole Bible where Jesus is called an apostle. What's that about? Some of you know this. What does the word apostle mean? A sent one. It means someone who's been sent on a mission. Someone who has been sent commissioned to carry out the ways of the sender. And Jesus is called an apostle because God the Father sent him on a mission to this earth. He sent Jesus from heaven to this earth to be his final word to man, to be his ultimate spokesman, and to be the savior of his people. We could even say that Jesus, in this sense, is the ultimate missionary. And I read, especially in the Gospel of Luke, you can read this in any of the Gospels, but particularly in the Gospel of Luke, there are these repeated comments about Jesus being sent, or Jesus himself saying, I was sent, or I came. Even how John, by the Holy Spirit, begins his Gospel account. Oh, don't you love the first chapter of John, the prologue to John's Gospel? Read it, soak in it, then read it again and soak in it some more. Where God opens up the curtains for us. And he says, look at my son. Look at my son. And I am always gripped when I get to verse 14. When John writes, the word became flesh. That should grip us. The eternal word of God became flesh, became a real human being who bled when they pierced his side. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. And then John continues. And he says this in verses 17, 18. He says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, referring to Jesus. He has made him known. And so when the author of Hebrews picks an unusual word to ascribe to Jesus, and he says, Consider Jesus the apostle. He's wanting to get our attention, for Jesus was sent on a mission. He came to tell us about God. He came to show us God. And then he says this. He says, consider Jesus the high priest of our confession. Jesus is our high priest. That means he represents us to God. So not only is the apostle, has he come from God to us, but as our high priest, our faithful high priest, he represents us to God. So he brings God to us, and he brings us 
to God. He's our apostle and our faithful high priest. And we, we think about this. Why would I need a high priest? I, I, need someone who, I need someone who will pay the sacrifice for me. I need someone to represent me before God. And as we sit here today, and each of you struggles with your, your day, your week, with all the things you have going on and all your insecurities and failures, you, you look upward and you see him there who made an end of all your sin. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. That our advocate Jesus Christ, our high priest, stands before the throne of the holy God. And he says, this one is mine, and this one is mine, and this one, and this one, and this one. We have a faithful high priest. Oh, consider Jesus. Oh, consider Jesus. He's our apostle. He's our faithful high priest. The faithful high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, who is faithful to him who appointed him. And when I think about this, the author of Hebrews is not trying to denigrate Moses. He's not trying to denigrate Moses. If anything, he's reminding us that Moses is worthy of respect, worthy of honor. But you know what? Even though Moses was faithful, he wasn't perfectly faithful, was he? I mean, Moses failed at times. And there were times when he disobeyed God. In fact, it got him in trouble. When he got to the end of the journey, he wasn't allowed to lead his people into the promised land. He died on the other side, the east side of the Jordan. He wasn't allowed to take them in because of his own failure. So Moses was faithful, but he wasn't perfectly faithful. But Jesus, our high priest, is perfectly faithful. He said, I came to do the will of my Father. Jesus Christ came on that mission to carry out the will of his Father as saving his people from their sins. And hours before the cross, just hours before the cross, Jesus prayed aloud to his Father, letting his men eavesdrop on that prayer. And John records it for us in John 17. And John remembered that night hearing the Savior say to his heavenly Father, Father, I have finished the work you've given me to do. I finished it. I've done it all. So he could cry out from the cross the next morning, what? It is finished. Jesus Christ is the faithful high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. Faithful to the one who appointed him. Jesus Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. As I mentioned earlier, the house here depicts the people of God. It's, it's not a structure. It's the family, the spiritual family. And Moses was a faithful servant over that house, the, the old covenant people. And it's not that the author of Hebrews is saying, you know, Moses is pretty good. Jesus, you know, he's kind of a little step higher. No, actually, Jesus is in a category all of his own. He's without peers. There's no one to compare Jesus to. It's more of a contrast. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking of that day that uh, three of Jesus' apostles were up on the Mount of Transfiguration with, with Jesus. And God's glory came down on that mountain. 
And they heard a voice from heaven speaking to them. And what did God say? What was that voice? It says in Luke chapter 9, verse 35, a voice came out of a cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And God the Father actually speaks to these apostles up on the mountain with Jesus. And he says, listen to my son. Jesus is faithful, not in the house. Moses was a member of that family. So he was a faithful servant within the family. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is over the family. And he's over the family not only as a faithful servant, but he's over the family as God's son. The very son of God. And he's showing that, yeah, respect Moses. He, he was a wonderful servant of God. But don't get fixated on Moses and miss Jesus. Jesus, he says, is counted of more glory, worthy of more glory than Moses. I was reading a commentator on this verse, and he said this. Let me read it to you. It says, to the Jews, Moses had an incomparable position among those whom God had used in the history of the people of God. In other words, Moses had no other prophets that were like him. To argue that Jesus is greater than Moses was to make an astounding claim, especially in the minds of Jewish readers. And that is exactly what the author does here. The author is making this shocking statement. He wants these Jewish Christians, these early Jewish Christians, he wants them to pay attention not just to what he's saying, but to the one he's speaking of. When he says Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, that, that might not grab us as, whoa! But to those early Jewish Christians, they would be sitting back when this letter was read in their assembly. Look, whoa! Jesus is worth more glory than Moses? Exactly. Yes. So, Jesus is this one who's the son of God over all the house. And we are his people. And we could go to different passages in the Bible that talk about us being the household of God, the family of God. One of my favorites is in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, as you come to him, Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones are being built up in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Yes, we can Respect Moses for his faithfulness as a servant of God in God's house. But Jesus is over the house as the very son of God. Moses reflected the glory of God. Think about that. Paul picks up on that in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, some of you know this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, what was unusual about his face? It was glowing. He was reflecting the glory he had seen up on the mountain. Moses had spent 40 days in the presence of God. And after 40 days in the presence of God, as he came down from that mountain, his face was actually glowing. It was radiating, it was reflecting the glory that he had seen. But Jesus doesn't merely reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. He's the one that Moses was reflecting. So Moses was like a mirror reflecting the sun. Jesus is the sun. He's the sun. He's the one that Moses was reflecting. 
that God the Son shows the glory of God to us. Yes, consider Jesus God's faithful Son. So we look at this and we see Moses is worthy of our respect, but Jesus, he's worthy of more glory because of who he is. He's God's apostle to us, our faithful high priest before the throne of God. He's God's son over the house. But maybe we should take a few minutes and ask the question, but who are we? Who are we? And you look at the beginning of this passage. I kind of took you all over the passage this morning, didn't I? But how does he begin? What does he call us? The author of Hebrews calls us holy brothers and sisters. Now, sometimes we just blow by verses like that, you know. We just blow by them like, I've seen that before. Well, wait a minute, let's slow down. He's calling these people holy brothers and sisters. What, I know we're still in the early days of our study of Hebrews, but what do you know about these people that, that got this sermon letter? They were struggling. They were struggling. They were struggling with their faith. Their, their faith was weak and wavering. They were filled with doubts. And here the author of Hebrews, who's unknown to us, we don't know who it was, but here's the author of Hebrews calling these weak, wavering Christians holy brothers and sisters. Friends, that should encourage us. I mean, think about times when you have felt your weakness, maybe this morning. <laughs> you think about the times where you feel like, my faith isn't nearly as strong as I want it to be. It's not nearly as strong as it should be. And you look at the own weakness of your heart. You look at the wavering life you're living. And you say, why would God want me around? Why would God ever welcome me into his presence? And yet these early wavering Jewish Christians are called by the author holy brothers and sisters. They didn't cease being brothers and sisters because of their weaknesses. They didn't cease being brothers and sisters because they were unstable. They're still brothers and sisters. And he calls us, he calls us holy. And you say, does that mean I'm a good person? No. Uh, some of you know one of my pet peeves. When I say, how you doing? You say, I'm good. I will probably respond to you with, no, you're not. Was that my daughter's voice? <laughs> oh, that was Stephanie. <laughs> no, you're not, but he is. <laughs> you say, I am well. You're not good. Jesus Christ is good. So if I say, how you doing? And you say, I'm good. And I say, no, you're not. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm trying to point you to Christ. You're not good, but he is. And so when it says holy brothers and sisters, it's not saying, oh, you're a good person. Just feel better about yourself. You're a good person. No, holy because we've been sanctified by him. By his sovereign grace, he set us apart as his people, as his house. We learned that as Pastor Mark preached last week from chapter 2, didn't we? In verse 17 of chapter 2, therefore he made us, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Hmm. So Jesus Christ came and he made us his people through his sacrifice on the cross that he satisfied all the Father's holy wrath against sin and sinners on our behalf. He appeased that righteous judgment of God so that we could receive full pardon. 
we are holy, brothers and sisters, because of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And then the verse says, verse 1 also says, who share in a heavenly calling. And the older I get, the more phrases like that encourage my heart. And I've talked to other people in my peer group, and sometimes we say how weary we are of living in a fallen world. In this past week, I've had friends lose family members. A dear pastor friend of mine lost his 10-year-old granddaughter. Someone else loses a mother, a son-in-law. You say, oh, death, when are you going to be done? When are you going to be done with our fallen race? When I deal with people over their sins, when I look in the mirror and deal with that guy's sin, I think, when are we going to be done with this? This sin. When I see the effects of time on an aging body, an aging mind, and then they go, when, when is a new one coming? It's on order. <laughs> you know, and I think, oh, are we stuck here? Are we, are we stuck in this fallen world? And then I remember these promises, even in these little phrases we read about a heavenly calling. That, my friends, this fallen world we're living in now is not our final destination. That Jesus Christ is the great emancipator. He is the great liberator from, from slavery to sin and death. And he is the faithful one. And he will lead us into the promised land of our eternal rest and the new heavens and the new earth. We are about to read that in chapter 3 and 4. That he is the one who is faithful and will lead us into our promised eternal rest. And as we continue our journey in this fallen world, as we continue our traverse through this era between the gardens, we know that paradise yet awaits us. The new heavens and the new earth is promised for us and has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can persevere through the difficulties of this world knowing it's not the last chapter. We are called to a heavenly and then the author of Hebrews says this, in case we get careless, he says, if indeed we hold fast. If indeed we hold fast. Whoa, that sounds like a warning. It is. It's a warning. It's a warning that we should not be presumptuous, we should not be lax. That it is by grace we persevere, but we must persevere. The author of Hebrews has been strongly telling these people, you don't take the Christian life for granted, you just don't go passive and say, whatever. No, there is a gospel-fueled, Christ-centered determination to stay with Jesus Christ. And he's saying, don't loosen your grip on Christ. Don't let him drift to the periphery of your life. And so that's what I want us to focus on in this takeaway from this passage. You know, we can read a passage like this, these first six verses of Hebrews 3, and we think, eh, I, it's been a long time since I've struggled with overly venerating Moses. How many of you struggle with that on a regular basis, over-veneration of Moses? I didn't think so. And so we read a passage like this was, that was to a different people in a different era. These were first century Jewish Christians. And we say, that ain't me. I'm not first century, I'm not Jewish. I'm a Christian, no, most of us. And we read this and we can easily dismiss it saying, well, this is interesting theology, but what's that have to do with me? It has a lot to do with you and me. 
You know what? We might put different particulars in, but we have the same issue. And the same issue is we must consider Jesus. We must keep him central. We must make him more important than anything else, anyone else in our daily lives. Let's not be naive. There are some things that can push us off center, that can push us away from the centrality of Jesus Christ. And when I say push, I'm thinking primarily of issues of fear. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll find out, we will find out, like in chapter 10, I think it is, where the author of Hebrews talks to these people about the difficulties they've been facing, the confiscation of their stuff, imprisonments. It was hard to be a Christian in the first century. And I could see them kind of toning down their commitment to Christ, their communication of Christ in order to lessen the danger of persecution, the danger of being shoved aside in their culture. And so fear can push us away from the centrality of Christ. And there are other things, and this is more subtle, but there are some things that pull us away from the centrality of Christ. And I think at the top of the list must be doubt, unbelief. We'll see as we go through the book of Hebrews together, for those of you that are regularly part of CCC, we're going to see that lack of faith, doubt, unbelief is a major issue in the book of Hebrews. We're going to see this over and over where these people are wrestling with unbelief. Unbelief, doubts, can pull us away from the centrality of Jesus Christ. So can the glitter of this world. We look at what this world has to offer and this world says, you know, the prosperity of this world, the popularity of this world, the pleasure of this world, that's what's going to make you happy. And we say, well, I can still be a Christian. I can still be a Christian. And we kind of put Jesus over here on the side. And I can serve money. I can serve popularity. I can serve pleasure. But Jesus already made it clear, didn't he? He says, you can't do that. You, you cannot serve God and money. You're going to love one and hate the other. No, the, those things, the glitter of this world can pull us away from the centrality of Christ. And let me stick my neck out here and say another danger I think we live in our culture, another danger we live with in our culture, Christian culture, is the danger of putting too much veneration on preachers and Christian celebrities. The Corinthian church was guilty of this, and Paul had to write his first letter to them to address this issue of the attention they were putting on Christian preachers. And the church was being divided. The church in Corinth was being divided. Some people say, well, Apollos now, man, now there's a guy that can preach. I'm a Apollos. And someone else might say, well, Paul's not quite the preacher he is, but boy, I'll tell you what, it's theology, man. That charges my batteries. I'm of Paul. And Paul said, stop it. Stop it. Stop having this hero worship of preachers. And we live in a day where people, no one say these exact words, but you listen to some people and you think, you know, I'm of Keller. Well, I'm of Piper. I'm of MacArthur. I'm of Chandler. I'm of Chan, and on and on we could go. Or maybe it's not a preacher. Maybe it's a musician or someone that has some podcast you especially enjoy, and you say, oh, I'm with that group. I'm, I'm with him. I'm with her. 
And if we're not careful, we can elevate human beings, even good preachers, to the point that they become more important to us than Christ himself. And in this over-veneration of even worthy preachers or missionaries or singers, somehow Christ has been lesser important in our affections and our thinking. And so even though we might not deal with the very same issue of these first recipients of the book of Hebrews, in principle we wrestle with the same issue. That we can so easily put something else is more important in our lives than Jesus Christ. We can put this central in our life instead of Jesus Christ. And he says, no, consider Jesus. Fix your mind on him. I would like us to think about this not only as individuals. As Americans, we tend to think individually. But we need to remember this was written to a church. And I think about this corporately as a church. Are we centering on Jesus Christ? We live in an era, we live in a culture where there is constant pressure on church leaders, on pastors, to fit in to the current culture. And as Pastor Mark said, in God's kindness, I've had the privilege of being one of the pastors here for a long time. And I can say from those decades of, of experience in this ministry that over the decades, I have seen different pressures come to my attention to, to shift to give attention, well, this should be the primary message of the church. This should be the primary mission of the church. This should be the primary value in a church. And when I was a young pastor, it was called felt needs. You know, you need to figure out what people are looking for and deliver. And if you can figure out what people are looking for and you can deliver, you're going to have a successful church. You're going to have a growing church. Look for people's felt needs so you can have a successful church. And I was tempted. As a young pastor, like, you know, that makes sense to me. Find out what people are looking for and deliver. And there might be other things in our day, currently, could be social issues. The most important thing a church should focus on is this social issue or that social issue. And it should become, in some people's minds, the, the center of our message, the center of our mission, that that's what we're all about. And sadly, some people make political issues a thing. You know, we want to be a, whatever it is, left or right. <laughs> we want to be a church of this political persuasion. We should be promoting these candidates and these issues, these political issues. Let's have a flag-waving ceremony. We are not a nationalistic church, friends. I'm thankful for where we live, but we are not a nationalistic church. But there's always pressure. Always pressure for church leaders to make this the issue, to make that the issue. And the sad thing is, friends, even as a church, we can get knocked off center. Consider Jesus. Stay focused on Jesus. Keep him central. But there's all this pressure, not just as individuals, but pressure as local churches to put something else as central, even good things. Do we care about these things? Do we care about social justice as a people of God? Yes. We better. It's in the word of God. Do we care about the temporal needs of people? Issues of hunger, issues of housing, issues of health. Yes, we should care about those things. But those things flow from our passion for Christ. Our desire to want to reflect Christ in our fallen world. It starts with Christ and ends with Christ. And as we devote time and attention to these other issues, we put them in that perspective. They're not central. They flow from the central of Christ. 
We're his people. We reflect him in our fallen world. So rather than taking our cues from the world, we take our cues from God and his word. I think of it this way. Rather than trying to discern what the people want to hear, we need to be asking, what does God want to say? The answer to those are not always the same. We must not ask, well, what do people want to hear? We must ask, what does God want to say? And sometimes what God wants to say isn't popular in our culture. As the house of God, the church of Jesus Christ, we are not called to fit into our culture. Churches that try to fit into the culture are always morphing, always morphing. Okay, what's the latest thing? How can we morph to fit into our culture more? I read a wise saying one time. Someone said, he who seeks to be married to the spirit of the age soon finds himself a widow. <laughs> Do you need that one again? He who seeks to be married to the spirit of the age soon finds himself a widow. What does that mean? It means because issues are always changing. And churches say, well, we, you know, we want to we be... We want to be with it in our culture, you know. We, we want to be well accepted by the people in our culture. We, we want to look like, you know, we're, we're with it. And so what, what's the current? What's the current issue? What's the current message? What's the current thing? Whatever. And in doing so, we loosen our grip on the centrality of Christ. And we come back to those two words. Consider Jesus. Fix your mind on him. Church. Fix your mind on Jesus Christ. So as a church, as this local church, we must keep Christ and his gospel as central. And I'm so thankful for a new generation of leaders in our church that are committed to that cause, to keep Christ as central. In our doctrinal convictions as a church, in our preaching and teaching, no matter what ages we're talking about, in our singing, the songs we sing, in our affections, in our mission to this world, the Christ is center. Consider Jesus. Let me close by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and then we'll ask the worship team, Pastor Mark, to come. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said this. Listen to these words as I close. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we preach Christ crucified. Amen? Amen. Join me as we ask God to help us with that.